Good morning. It's good to see all of you on this first Sunday of 2022. And, um, you know, as we get this year started, I got to admit, it's a weird year to get started. I mean, I feel like when you start a new year, you we have this desire to be able to plan and to kind of control even what the outcome of our future year is going to be. I mean, I'm, very, I'm a very strategic thinker, and I love to come up with plans and initiatives, and, and I have done some of that this year. But actually, 2021 was the first year I've ever had, that's last year, that I decided not to have a strategic plan. I know that may be disconcerting to you, but I was like, I honestly feel like the variables in this world are so massive that who am I to think that I can plan like I normally would for this year? I'm just going to try to moment by moment, day by day, week by week, trust the Lord and see where he leads us. And I feel the same way about 2022. I mean, there, there are some things in my heart. I mean, I, on one hand, am, am holding within me great hope and, and a lot of gratefulness for what the Lord has done and is doing in my own life personally and in our congregation. I mean, we're in this building, which is really exciting to be in here on a rainy uh, January Sunday. That's amazing. Uh, we have some really good news about year-end giving. It came in at 184000 which is more than we budgeted for. It was 178000 what we budgeted for. And so um, that's amazing. I mean, you guys are continue to uh, follow the Lord and be incredibly generous, and that's going to be incredibly helpful for us as a congregation as we get started. So I've got that going on in my heart. I've also got, at the same time, this mixed bag of you know, what is 2022 going to be like? I mean, we've, this is two years into a pandemic. Mark prayed about it. Here we are with Omicron and the cases, and we don't know exactly how to respond to that. And it's a challenge for us. Even in our own marriages, we may have one, you know, person in the family that's responding one way and another person, it creates tension for us, and it's challenging. There's no doubt in my mind as you enter into 2022, you have unresolved uh, unfinished things from 2021 in your life, struggles, maybe in your marriage, it could be with a child, it could be financially. There, there, are, there are aspects of our lives as we enter into 2022, though we want to have hope and we can in Christ, and that's what this message is about, the reality is as we enter into this year, I have chosen an unusual topic to preach on. Most New Year sermons do not uh, cover Jesus for the weary. I mean, typically in a new year, our desire is to gin up whatever energy we have in us and to just move forward as well as we can with as much you know, conjured up hope as we can have into the new year. But I submit to you, I believe that our culture and our world and you individually and us as a church and I preached on this in December, and just because we're in January, it doesn't change it. We're weary. We're weary people as we enter into a new year. And that is something that causes us to be emotional. It causes me to be emotional. As I start out for a new year, I've got 364 days left, and I'm already weary. What does that mean for 2022? What does that mean? How can we move forward in this time? I was... Uh, talking to a Chinese friend of mine, and he wrote out this quote for me that I want to share with you. He's uh, the pastor of a church in Chengdu. His name is Paul Pung. Our church has given his church a lot of money, or some money, to plant churches in Chengdu. And Paul said this to me. 
this is a message from the Chinese house church that is persecuted. He said this, Since persecution began three years ago, our churches across China have had to face an external reality. We keep losing. The loss of our pastors, the loss of decent church buildings, the loss of libraries, the loss of classrooms, the loss of many tangible connections with other churches, the loss of tangible connections with brothers and sisters abroad. And one day we may even lose the opportunity for online gatherings. In fact, we now are being called to re-examine the nature of the church and the relationship between the church and the gospel in order to lay the foundation upon which we will reconstruct the church's systems. He goes on, he says, When all the church's external support systems have gone or are diminished, we must ask, what resources does the church stand on? What resources do pastors themselves depend on? All churches facing similar challenges must respond from a theological perspective. Our union with Christ provides the only answer. Wow, that's amazing. He's saying, we keep losing. Now, that is a very un-American message to preach on January the 2nd. We keep losing. It's a very unevangelical message to preach. I know we have hope in Christ, and in the end, we will triumph. But in the middle, as we start 2022, and we face what we have experienced in 2020 and 2021, and as the world church is facing this, the fact is we have experienced a lot of losses, a lot of losses. And the reality is, as we enter into a new year, those losses will not automatically stop. I would love for that to happen. I would love for us to stop losing people we love to sickness and death. I would love that. I would love for the world church, the global church, to stop being persecuted. That would be amazing. I would love for us to stop having to answer questions about how will we get this building finished or, or whatever it might be or whatever that thing is. But the fact is we experience losses. And in the middle of those losses, we have an existential question that is asked in verse 27 that brings us into this passage is this. Our way, oftentimes, it says our right or our cause, we often feel disregarded by God. Even if theologically we don't believe that's true, we feel like our way is hidden from God. That's how Israel felt back in this day and age. They had, they had been taken into exile. And in the midst of exile, the message that we preached on, on Christmas Eve, Isaiah 41 through 11, which is this unbelievable proclamation of the gospel, they received that message of the Redeemer that would come. They received that message in exile. And their response to that was on one hand, that's great news. And on the other hand, can I really believe that's, that that's true? Do I really believe that God is going to restore my life? Do I believe the gospel? Do I believe the gospel news that comes to us in our circumstances, our very real circumstances, but also with hope for the future? We ask questions like this. How can God be in any of this? What is God doing? Does God care about me at all? One of my daughters used to walk around the house and she would sing the song, My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. I remember that vividly. And, and as she sang it, there was no doubt in her six-year-old mind that that was true. 
my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. But as we get older and as we face challenges in life, we ask ourselves the question internally, is that really true? Is God really so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing he can't do? Or maybe even more importantly, the question, if God is so big and so strong and so mighty, then is he still present with me? Does he care? Does he love me? That is the question that the people of Israel are facing in Isaiah 40. If my God is big and strong and mighty, is he present with me? Does he love me? Does he care about me? This morning, we're going to talk about the gospel for weary people, challenged people. First of all, we're going to look at where restoration for weary people comes from, or excuse me, the situation in which it comes. So it's the situation where it comes. Then second of all, why restoration for weary people comes? Why is it that God can bring restoration to us? And then finally, how restoration comes. So where it comes, why it comes, and how it comes, okay? So first of all, where restoration comes, the situation where God brings restoration. It comes in this situation I was just talking about. We have to go down to verse 27 to get the context. The people of God are experiencing this emotion, this challenge of if my circumstances, if I'm in exile, if I feel like my circumstances are more than I can bear, if I feel hidden from God, then where is God in that moment. There are times when we feel like God cannot see us. There are times we feel like we're being disregarded by God. Verse 27 takes it even further where it says, my cause or my way or my right has been disregarded by God. What this means is that we don't just feel disregarded personally. We feel like as children of God, we are following God We are using our gifts, we're investing our time, our talent, our treasure. We're genuinely seeking to follow God as parents. We're genuinely seeking to follow God as spouses, as husbands, as wives, as followers of Jesus. And even in the midst of that, even in the midst of us investing our lives on behalf, not just of ourselves, even though we we do have self-centeredness going on, but we genuinely are seeking to follow after the Lord And it's even in the midst of that situation, not just generally for us as children of God, but for us as as we are investing in God's cause that we feel like God does not see us. And that's where we live. Sometimes you're generous with your finances and there's more month left at the end of the money. Sometimes you're facing challenges with your children You've sought to raise them as well as you can, but still there are so many things that we cannot do in our children's lives to help them or to change them. When we feel disregarded by God, let me tell you the next step that we almost always take. It's the step that the people of God take in Numbers chapter 20. And it's they feel when they feel disregarded by God, they begin to grumble or complain. And that grumbling and complaining can turn into anger. We get angry. And the people angrily go to Moses in the wilderness. They are, they are thirsty. That is a, that is a, is something that they're like, okay, God created me as a human being. He knows I need water, right? I mean, how can I live without water? And literally, they're saying, all I need is water. And there's no water in this wilderness that I'm in. 
and they're just getting angrier and angrier. And they finally go to Moses, and they, they go to God, essentially, through Moses. They say, why won't you give us what we need? We need water. And we need water, obviously, physically, but we need water spiritually. We need, we need hope. We need hope for weary souls. And they're going to God, and we're going to God, and we're saying, God, all I'm asking for is water. And so in the midst of that, what they're saying is, God, I know you're sovereign. You've led us into this wilderness, but I'm looking around, and through my physical senses, I can't see any water. There's not any, actually. But what they don't know in that moment is that there's this rock there, this gigantic rock. And that rock, from that rock, God is going to bring water into their community. They can't possibly see it. So they're asking God, do you even care? But God's plan was to give them water from a source that they never anticipated. From their own sensibilities, they could have never seen or understood that what God wanted from them was to depend on him so that he would give them water from a rock. Later in 1 Corinthians 10, it tells us that that rock was Christ. Now, that's, that's a little bit hard for us to understand. Because it doesn't say that rock was like Christ, it said that rock was Christ. I'm not going to preach a sermon on that, but the, the story here for us is this, that when we get to the end, when we get utterly to the end and we're saying, God, I just want water. I'm looking around at my circumstances. I'm looking around at all of these things in my life. And, I, and I'm just saying, God, I just want water. I just want spiritual life. And none of these things in my life are giving me the life that I need. I can't find it. And God is saying to us in that moment, yes. Yes, absolutely. None of those circumstances in your life can give you the life that you want or the life that you need. Not to say those aren't important. Not to say that physical health isn't important. Not to say that children aren't important or your marriage isn't important or serving the church isn't important. But the reality is none of those things things can give you life. The only thing that can give you life, the only person who can give you life is external to your circumstances. It comes from outside of us into our lives. It comes through Jesus Christ alone. One person said that complaining is the casual despising of the sovereignty of God. It's the casual despising of the sovereignty of God. It's looking around at our circumstances and saying, God, I just can't see how you love me if this is what is going on. And God is saying, I do love you. I'm just giving you that water in a way that you would have never anticipated. It's not coming through your circumstances. It's coming through me. Another story from my kids growing up. Sometimes we would be hanging out together, and all of a sudden, one of them out of nowhere, I mean, I'm there in the room with them. But they would scream out, Daddy, Daddy, where are you? And I'm like, are you serious? Like, I'm still here. I'm still, like, right here in the room with you. Maybe they're watching TV or maybe they got distracted or something really scared them. But I'm there with them in the room. Like, I haven't moved. And they scream out, Daddy, where are you? And, of course, my response to them is I say, I'm here. And I go over and I hug them and I I put my arms around them, and that's like us in 2022 as this year gets started. We're saying, God, God, where are you? And God is saying, I'm here. I'm right here. I'm right here with you. I'm right here with you in the wilderness. I'm right here with you in the midst of your life, and I love you. 
So God responds to us in this way. So how does God respond? He calls out to us, and he reminds us of two things, and that's the rest of this passage, okay? Verse 27 is us. It's we are, we feel disregarded by God. We feel weary. We feel exhausted. The rest of this passage is about who God is for us in the midst of our our exhaustion and weariness. So that's the situation in which restoration comes. It comes to us when we're very tired. Second of all, why restoration comes, it comes because of who God is. It comes because of who God is. So let's go back to the beginning of this text in verse 12. So this section is like a legal scene where God has been put on the stand. We've put God on the stand. And we say to God, I feel disregarded by you. I feel like you don't see me. I feel like you don't care. And so God stands up and he defends himself in this passage. And he says, listen, I want to remind you of who I am. So why restoration comes? First of all, it comes because God is powerful in his abilities. Let's, Let's walk through this section. Verse 12, he says, look at my power, look at my power. He says, I have power over all things. I have power over the waters and the earth. The waters and the earth, this is an expression of totality. He goes on, he says, the waters and the heavens, the dust and the mountains. The idea here is poetically, it's a word called merism, and that means that this expression of, of two opposite poles, what God is saying is I'm not just Lord over the mountains, I'm not just Lord over the valleys, I'm not just Lord over the, the seas and over the earth, I'm Lord over everything. So there's nothing in this whole world that is outside of God's power. He goes on and he says, not only am I powerful over all things, my power is exact. He says, like a master craftsman, I've measured or marked off creation. Who has ability like me? He says, he goes on, he says, not only do I have power over all things, Not only is my power exact, he says, my power is easy for me. It's easy. God, it's like, have you ever been, uh, had someone talk down to you about something that you actually know all about? Like, Like, literally, you know all about that thing. And yet, they're talking down to you as if they need to educate you about whatever that thing is. It's super annoying when that happens, right? And that's kind of what God is saying here. He's like, listen. He's like, I know all about this. I know all about this. My, I, I have easy competence in relation to the task that is ahead of me here. So he's saying, if you're questioning whether or not I can bring restoration, I can easily do that. I have the power to do it. Then he says, if you're questioning whether or not I have the wisdom to bring restoration, let me tell you about that as well. He says, not just look at my power, but look at my wisdom in verses 13 in 14, he says, you know, for you, your knowledge and your wisdom comes by listening or watching someone else. But can you imagine God sitting in a classroom in one of those desks? Can you, can you put God in that desk and imagine God acquiring wisdom the way that we have to acquire wisdom? He's saying that's ridiculous. In fact, the Babylonian God of that time, his name was Marduk. He couldn't proceed with creating the world in Babylonian myth without consulting other gods, without consulting other other people. And so God's saying, I'm not like the Babylonian God that you're you're around there in your time in exile. 
I, am, I totally know everything without ever needing to learn. If you, if you can imagine me in a classroom, you're not imagining me correctly. I have the wisdom, God says, to create the world. He's saying, I've never not been wise. You need to trust in my wisdom. It's not just his power and his wisdom. It's also his authority in verses 15 through 20. So here he he talks about two supposed contenders with him for who actually has authority in the world. And the first he takes up is the nations. The nations. And the second he takes up is the idols. The idols. First of all, the nations in verses 15 through 17. In verse 15, he talks about the power of the nations. He's saying here, here's my view, God says, of the great nations of the world. It's like comparing the one who can hold the oceans in his hands to a drop in the bucket. It is literally, there is no comparison. He's like, it's like comparing the weight of an island to the dust that's left on the scales after you weigh something. God is saying, my, my power is so much greater than the nations. Then he goes into their religious activities. He's saying, all the cedars of all the animal, all the cedars and all the animals of Lebanon would not be enough for a burnt offering for me. Not even close. In fact, he says it's, it would be totally unworthy and useless for me to receive. That was, the, the cedars of Lebanon were like the, the most famous trees of that era. It'd be like the sequoia, sequoias of California. And the greatest animals in all the land. He's saying none of that compares to how great I am. It's like in math, no matter how great the number is, even if that number is 100 million, if you compare that number to infinity, it always rounds out to zero. So when we look at things in the world today, we look, oh my gosh, like COVID. Okay, it is, it is, it is a serious thing. It is a serious thing. It, it is like a 100 million thing, okay? But in comparison to God, it rounds out to zero because God's power and his competence and his wisdom and his authority, every, nothing compares to who God is. The greatest nations on earth, China. China, I mean, they think they're so amazing. America, even. We, we might think we're so amazing. We, none of us compare. We, we compare rounding down to zero to the greatness of our God. And then he goes into, what about the idols? This is the other supposed contender with how, who God was. He says, do you want to compare me to an image, an idol? Idols which are created by people who have been then created, who are then created by me. Does it make sense, he says, that to you that an idol which is created by someone who I created can be greater than me? And then he goes on and he says, look at these, they're set up with these, these chains, these silver chains that will not allow them to topple over. He's saying these idols, these physical idols, we'll talk about some spiritual idols in a minute. But these physical idols of the nations, like you might see uh, in India or in some parts of Asia still today, these physical idols are, are nothing compared to me. They actually have to be fashioned with chains, so if the wind blows, it won't blow them over. He's saying, listen, seriously, they're nothing compared to me. The nations and the idols of the nations round out to zero compared to me. And then in the end, he kind of brings this section to a climax, just talking about how great he is and how powerful he is. In verse 22, he says, the people are like grasshoppers to me. Like literally, when God looks down on the earth, everyone, Xi Jinping, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, whoever, Vladimir Putin, doesn't matter. 
They're grasshoppers compared to God. All of us, I mean, in comparison to God, we really are insignificant in terms of, um, in terms of our power. In verse 23, he says, compared to the thrones of men, the princes of this world, they're all inconsequential. And there's verse 25, he says, who is my equal? What created thing are you going to compare me to now? There's nothing that compares to me. And this is the final point that God makes, just to show how great he is as he's about to sit down from defending his, his authority and his power. He says in verse 26, let me tell you one final word, let this blow your mind. He says, I want you to look up on a starry night, and I want you to look at the number of stars in the sky, and I want you to realize not only did I create those, not only do I know how many there are, but I actually know the names of all the stars. Now, NASA, when they try to calculate the stars, their answer is, we don't know. Their answer is, we don't know how many stars there are. We don't know. Um, the European Space Agency suggests the best way to appreciate how many stars there are would be to begin counting the number of grains of sand on a beach. And yet God says, I, I don't just know how many there are, greater than NASA, greater than the European Space Agency, actually know their names. Not, not the names you can buy on the internet and give to your kid for Christmas in their stocking or something, for some star you know, out there, which is kind of a cool thing to do. But not the real name, the real name of the star. When God called the star into existence, God knows the names of all the stars in the sky. And God says, if the question for you is, do I have enough power to restore your soul? Then the answer is, I have, I have plenty of power. I have plenty of power. He said, there's no place you can find yourself, no matter how disregarded you may feel. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is not a hypothetical question for me personally. There are times when I feel disregarded by God. I feel like God doesn't see me. I feel like God doesn't see what's going on. I feel it too. But the real answer, if the question is, is God powerful enough? Does he have enough authority? Is he wise enough? The answer is absolutely yes. God absolutely has the power to restore your soul wherever you are right now. You may say, no, you don't understand how far away I am. Yeah, I might not know exactly where you are, but I know that wherever you are doesn't outweigh an island. It doesn't outnumber all of the stars in the sky. There's no way that what you're feeling is greater than the power of China or America or something like that. God has the power. But sometimes that's not our question, if we're honest. The question isn't, does God have the power? Is it? The question is, with that power, does God care? Does he care? God, if you have the power and the wisdom and the authority over everything, do you care about me? Will you take all of that and care about me? Why would you care about me? I feel like a grasshopper. You just said I'm a grasshopper. I feel like a grain of sand. I'm just like one of the millions of stars, maybe even less significant than one of the billions and billions of stars. Do you care about me? So God begins by defending his power, and he ends by assuring us of his love. This is how restoration comes, how God's life comes to us. How does God bring his life to us? This is the end of the passage, verses 29 through 31. First of all, God has to give us 
his life, like the rock in the wilderness. God has to give us water from a rock. He has to give us life from an unexpected place. Verse 29, it says, he gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. Toward the end of the passage, God says, listen, all people, even it says, even yous grow weary and stumble and fall. The idea here is that there's not one of you, not one person in here, not one person watching online, not one person in the world that will go throughout their lives and not stumble and fall. Every single one of you will have days and nights when you wonder, do I have what it takes? Do I, do I have the energy? In fact, you'll say, I don't. I don't have it. This is what he's getting at when he says the youths will grow tired and weary. It's not just our circumstances that are our problem. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest and say that we are our problem. We are part of the problem. It's not just if everything would go right, we would be okay. The problem is when things go right, sometimes we're still not okay in our hearts. We need God to redeem us in the very center of our hearts. The good news of the gospel is in our weariness and tiredness and stumblingness and falling that God brings his life to us from outside of the created order. Outside of our circumstances, outside of our own hearts, what we need is God to bring life to us and to weary souls from outside of creation. That's what we need him to do. We need God from outside of creation to bring eternal life into this world We need him to bring it into creation to redeem this broken world. And that's what God does, isn't it? And that's what we just celebrated at Christmas, is that God sent Jesus as the incarnate son. He brings Jesus Christ into the world. God himself, life, the life, the the light of the world, the life of men dwelt in Jesus Christ. And he brings life into our broken world. And so when we receive Jesus Christ, into our lives, we receive the life of God into us. That change we need, it cannot come from within you. Like humanism tells us. Humanism tells us that if you'll just focus on yourself enough, then you'll be able to find life there. You'll be able to gen it up on your own. Let me tell you, humanism is a terrible message for 2022. We're too tired for humanism. If it's up to me to like find some good stuff and like change my psychology, it's not, it's not going to work, okay? Humanism's not the answer. Social change is not the answer. That's what our political system might tell us. If we can build a social movement, then we'll all be okay. I don't think so. I don't think that's going to work. I don't think it's going to work for us. It can't come from religious service. Like world religions will tell us, if you'll just do enough or even bad versions of Christianity might have told you this. If you'll do enough for God, he will do enough for you. That's not the gospel. That's not going to work for you. How much do you need to do for God exactly? When does that service end? At what point does God say enough? Yeah, I will actually bless you. No, the only hope for us, I'm telling you, the only hope for you this year is the gospel. That's it. The only hope for you is in Jesus Christ who came from outside of our circumstances, outside of our hearts, outside of humanism, outside of politics, outside of other religions. The true version of Christianity, the gospel of grace, is your hope 
for this year, if you're tired and weary and exhausted, the only real answer for you is Jesus Christ. How does God give this everlasting life to us, to, bro- to broken, wearied people in exile? He gives us his son. Ultimately, that was the promise to Israel. They believed the promises were a political promise, that God was going to lead them back into the promised land. God did actually lead a remnant out, which was great. But that, was, that really wasn't all that, all that hopeful in, in the end. It wasn't what they expected. And, and we don't need to hope in God so that God will somehow change our circumstances just a little bit so it'll get better. What we need is the hope of Jesus. What the people of God needed then is the hope we need now. We need Jesus Christ to impart his restorative life to us and to the world. So first of all, we need that, that help from God that comes from outside of us to restore us. But the second factor that comes in how restoration comes is that we have to actually put our hope in this restorative life that comes from Jesus Christ. You have to actually hope in God. This is in verse 31. Verse 31. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now, that word there is wait. That word can also be hope. J. Alec Motier, who I've quoted a lot from in this Isaiah series, he describes or defines hope as a patient trusting, a patient trusting or a waiting on the Lord. Let me tell you, I feel like in 2020 and 2021, I've been waiting a lot. Part of me wishes in 2022 I could stop waiting and I would just have everything that I need so that I could stop with the waiting, I could stop with the patient trusting. But that's just not the Christian life. There are some things that are going to be resolved in this life, but there are some things that are also going to be resolved in the life to come. We are waiting. We're a waiting people. We're a watchful people. But we hope in Jesus Christ. My question for you is, is your hope today, as you start 2022, this is a crucial question for you. Is your hope in Jesus Christ? Is your hope in Jesus Christ? Some alternatives to Jesus could be. You could be hoping in yourself and your ability to achieve. That you're a good, hardworking person. You're an amazing planner. This year, you're going to download all the self-help books from the New York Times bestseller list. I just read all 20 of them. They were sent to me through Apple News. Every single one of them, every one of them, at the end of the day, They're telling you to put your hope in yourself, in your own ability to figure things out, plan things, even mental health. The plan, you need to take mental health seriously and think about mental health and believe it's a real problem and eventually accept yourself. It's not going to work. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, if you have to solve all your problems at the end of the day by reading a lot of books or listening to a lot of Audible uh, podcast. I mean, I'm just telling you, it's, it's just going to be discouraging for you. Um, is your hope in your spouse to finally get whatever you wanted them to get all these years? Or in your boyfriend or girlfriend or your friends or even in your child to, to do better than they have been doing before? Are you putting your hope in a person, a person besides Jesus? I'm telling you, that's a ter- it's a terrible place to put your hope, even if that person is amazing. Even if that person's your mom or your dad, and, and you just respect them so much, I'm telling you, don't put your ultimate hope in your mom or your dad. You should put your hope in Jesus Christ. 
is your hope has it ironically become in sort of an addiction. Maybe, I mean, you would never want to say this, but you get a little bit of hope every night from, from drinking, from pornography, from workaholism. Like after everybody else goes to bed or after everybody in the world goes to bed, you're still working because you're going to, you're going to work harder than everybody else and that's going to get you what you want. Is your hope in any of that? I'm telling you, if your hope is in any of those places and not in Jesus, you're going to be really disappointed and maybe even worse, okay? Put your hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no better place to put your hope than in Jesus and in all of his grace. I'm telling you, this is a really unusual sermon to start a year, okay? And I've never had a sermon like this to start a year. Usually there's like three really encouraging points about, you know, something. And ultimately this is encouraging, but I feel like in the midst of all of what we have going on, I just want to shoot straight with you. I just want to be real. I don't think that in this year in 2022, unless you put your hope in Jesus, Jesus Christ and in his grace alone, and in the restorative life of Christ that comes to you through faith as you hope in him, that there's one person, he does accept you, not based on how much you do. There's one person who no matter how much you sinned in 2021 and all the years previous, he forgives you of all those sins through his grace. There's one person who is powerful and he is present with you. He doesn't just have all the answers. He is present with you like a daddy in the room that can just walk over and say, I am with you, but better than any daddy because he can actually take care of you. It is Jesus Christ. Is your hope in Jesus Christ this year? Is your hope in Jesus? Because if it is, no matter what your circumstances are, whether they go as you hope or they don't, you can still have hope in Jesus Christ. He will still be there for you. No matter the people in your life or all of these other things going on, Jesus remains faithful and constant. Like that water from the rock in the wilderness, Jesus Christ flows to to you this year in an unexpected way, in a way that is outside of your circumstances. I'm encouraging you to put your hope in Jesus Christ this year. No matter what comes, you will today, you will walk out at some point, you will fail. Today, I believe that. I believe I will. Will you put your hope in Jesus Christ? Sometime this year, you will be greatly disappointed. Will you put your hope in Jesus Christ? Will you put your hope in Jesus Christ in 2022? This is the gospel of grace. It is good news for your souls. Hope in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I do pray that you would help us. God, we need, as we come... um, to the time of the Lord's Supper right now. We need to put our hope in you. I pray for anyone who's here today who, and that would be all of us, who have been putting our hopes somewhere else. In some way, we have been putting our hopes somewhere else. I pray that we would pivot in our hearts and put our hope in you and you alone. Lord, I pray for the person who has never put their hope in you, who has never come to a point where they've relinquished their control where they've turned away from their circumstances or their good works or their humanism or politics or whatever it is, and they've just put their hope in you. Lord, I pray that you would do that in us right now, whether we're at home in our living room or right here in this room. I pray for this to be the day of salvation. I pray that we would put our hope in you, not in a building, not in our finances, not in the church, in you and you alone. Lord God, we thank you that we can hope in you. We pray that we would. 
that you would do that in us. And even as we take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, I pray that you would do that in us. Lord God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we do go to the Lord's Supper here uh, really soon. Uh, we haven't taken it in our new building. This is our first time. We're still, one day we'll get back to taking it through the loaves and uh, the juice being up here and we'll come forward. That'll be a beautiful day, but uh, we're not there yet. We're still taking it like we were outside and still have some folks passing that around in just a minute. But as you think about taking the Lord's Supper this morning, I just want to ask you a question. Do you see yourself in the place of Israel in the wilderness needing a drink of water from the Lord? That is what the Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper represents the grace of Jesus Christ poured out for you at the cross, poured out for you in his blood, poured out for you in his body broken and his blood shed. It is the grace of God. This meal symbolizes and signifies the grace of the gospel flowing to you from God. So my encouragement to you would be to take it through faith. God has given us this meal. He's given us his son. I encourage you to take it through faith. If you've never put your hope in Christ before, I would encourage you to, instead of taking this meal, which represents Christ, I would encourage you to take Christ himself. You can do that right now in your heart by faith by just saying, God, I need you. I need you to, to forgive my sins. I need you in my life. Would you please come and, and be with me? And he will, it says in Revelation 3, he will come in and be with you if you invite him in. And so I encourage you to do that. But for the rest of you, if you are a Christian, if you're someone who's trusted Christ, I would highly encourage you to take this meal this morning by faith. Take it in faith that Christ loves you, forgives you, and is with you, powerful and present with his people. We're going to have a song of preparation and then I'll come back up in just a moment. Y'all can stand as we sing. And Lord, I come and I confess
this glass right here and I'm kind of thirsty and I want to drink it but what our soul really needs our collective soul what we really need is the water that comes from here it's the water that comes from the rock who is Jesus Christ we need Jesus that's why we take this meal together so as you take this meal I want you to take this this meal with hope this is not much of a meal but in Christ through Christ Jesus this is all you need this is the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. So let's take this together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Take and eat. After that, he said, this, this blood, it is, this, this cup, it is my blood. It is poured out for you. For the remission of sins. Every time you drink of it, you proclaim my gospel until I come again. Take and drink for the remission of sin. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that at the cross, you shed your blood for us. You shed your blood for us so that anyone who believes in you will not perish but have eternal life. So that anyone who believes in you will have their sins forgiven, not just one time, but every time, until you bring us safely home. Lord God, I pray for every person who is here. If this sermon has conjured up an awareness of our brokenness and our sin and our need for you, I pray that 10 times more, 100 times more, a million times more, as many stars as there are in the sky, which we don't even know, I pray that the gloriousness of your gospel, the greatness of your grace would transcend our sin and our brokenness and our unfaithfulness so much more that we would be so aware, God, in our hearts that you would bring us a true and spiritual awareness of how much you do love us in Jesus Christ in a way that transcends and is, and is imminent in every aspect of our lives. Lord, I pray that we would believe and hope in the gospel 
more than ever in 2022 as individuals and as a congregation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's